Well, good morning. Good morning. Glad you guys have joined us this morning, whether you're on Facebook or you found us at mymcc.info. I'm glad you're joining us. I'm glad that you took out a part of your day um, to set apart. It's important in these uh, changing times and these kind of chaotic times for us to maintain some rhythms. And so I'm glad that you took some time out of your Sunday morning to maintain this rhythm of gathering together, um, even if it is virtually. I, I think if, if um, 2020 could be defined by a word so far, it'd be change. I'm sure you've seen like the memes and stuff online and stuff about, um, uh, you know, like what's the return policy on 2020. And uh, my wife was showing me one yesterday and, and it's said, uh, um, it said, welcome to April 2020. You've reached level four on Jumanji. You know, it's just like, it just gets crazier every day. And so, but we're glad that you're here this morning. Uh, today, we are actually going to, by God's providence and plan, we're actually going to be talking about a passage that is about change. And so I want to read it to you. And then we're going to pray, and then we're going to chat for, for a little bit. So let me read it to you. It says this in Matthew 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 9. Um, if you've got another device, you can get the Bible app. You can get our notes at mymc.info. Um, but it says this. When the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and, they will and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskin, otherwise the wineskin bursts, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and they both are preserved. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you this morning that in the midst of constant change and uncertainty in our world, that you are unchanging. That in a world of fear and anxiety, that you are peace and you are stable, and that James says there's not even a hint, even a shadow, even an indication, even a, a, a bending of change in you. Lord, that our hope and our confidence is in you, that you are good and kind to us. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we have a story about John's disciples. Now, just for some context, if you're relatively new to the Bible, John's disciples are different than if you flip through the book of the Bible. We're going to read from it a little bit later. The, the Gospel of John, there was a guy named John who was a disciple of Jesus, and then there was a guy named John the Baptist. And the Bible tells us that John the Baptist was the forerunner. He was the one who was intended to prepare the way. The Old Testament had all these prophecies, all these um, foretellings about the, what the Messiah would look like, and then there was also foretellings about this guy that would come before the Messiah to prepare the way. And the Bible tells us that that guy is John the Baptist. Now, before Jesus' ministry really got started, John the Baptist was blazing a trail for Jesus, and he ended up with these disciples, these followers. Now, it seems 
It seems by our timeline that John the Baptist is actually not around anymore. The fact that John didn't come with them and it just says some of John's disciples. Now, you may know the end of the story about John the Baptist, but John the Baptist eventually gets arrested and then he eventually gets uh, executed. And so we don't know if he's in jail or if he's dead, but John the Baptist doesn't seem to be around. And John's disciples come to Jesus with this question this question that um, may not seem really significant to us, and, and actually I would even say further than that, they don't actually come with a question, they come with a critique. They come with a critique, and, and one of the ways you can tell it's a critique, when, you know, you've probably had these questions, people ask you a question, and it's, uh, maybe we'd call it passive-aggressive, right? It's, it's not really a question, it's, it's, it's a leading um, critique, about something you're doing or something you've said. And one of the ways you can tell uh, if someone is questioning because they want to learn as opposed to critiquing is us versus them. You see, John's disciples, it's actually pretty crazy. John's disciples actually pair themselves with the Pharisees. Did you see that? It says right at the beginning, John um, 9, verse 14. Then the disciples, John, came to Jesus asking, why do we and the Pharisees... Fast, but you, your disciples, do not fast. It's us versus them. They come to critique Jesus because, you see, they're, they're the disciples of John. They're the disciples of this forerunner. They're disciples of, of this, this, this um, uh, very devout religious man who's baptizing, calling all of Israel to repentance. And somewhere in that, it builds up in them a sense of arrogance that they think that they can come and critique Jesus and critique him, us versus them. But what I really want you to see today, and really probably the passage, the verse that's most significant of these four verses comes in verse 15. It's such a beautiful gift. It's such a beautiful gift. It may not seem like a really incredible gift to you because some of the ideas may seem kind of pulled out of the thin air, but it's because Jesus, the incarnation of God himself, God revealed in Jesus is speaking to a group of men 2,000 years ago who happened to be followers of this man named John the Baptist. So he speaks to them this really beautiful gift. So let me read you the verse again, and then I want to talk to you about what, what, it, what it means and why it's beautiful for us. He says this, and Jesus said to them, verse 15, the attendants of the bridegroom, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bride is with them. The bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. The bridegroom... The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? See, here's, here's why it's a gift. The, John's disciples were going through monumental, painful change. They, 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 these were men who had left everything, just like Jesus' disciples had left everything to follow this rabbi in John. To follow this teacher in John the Baptist who was calling people out to the river, who, who um, had this great power and anointing of God, one of the greatest preachers the world has ever seen. And they'd left everything to follow him. And at this point, probably for years, 
They'd probably been following John for years. They'd left everything. And John was likely influenced by a group called the Essenes, which was kind of an aesthetic. Uh, uh, that's not the right word. Um, I'll think of it later. But they were, they were a group of religious leaders who um, uh, kind of think monks. Like they, they, they pushed back against from all the comforts of this world. John the Baptist clothed himself um, minimally. He ate bugs. I mean, he, he rejected all the creature comforts of this world in his devotion. And these, these men had done the same thing. In following their rabbi, they'd rejected everything to come and follow this precursor, this one who was supposed to be preparing the way for the Messiah, and then their leader disappears. I mean, think of the chaos. Think of the panic in the heart. The man that they had devoted their whole life to follow gets arrested. I mean, you know, Jesus' disciples are going to experience what this is like very soon. Well, what they'd abandoned everything of their life. They'd imagined that just like all the rest of the people of the day of, of Israel, they'd imagined that they were following this, this, this predecessor who was going to usher in this Messiah, who was going to be a warrior king, who was going to come and stomp out the oppression of the Romans, who was going to ride in on a horse with a sword and was going to cut down the Roman oppression. And they'd left everything in pure devotion to their God, to see this happen. And then, it doesn't. And the world, as they knew it, crumbles. Everything that they expected, the way they expected the whole future to look like in the world that they were a part of, what they expected the next year, next 10 years, they expected to be a part of this army that conquered and kicked out the Romans and brought freedom and, and prosperity and a new sense of life and goodness and beauty to all of Israel. They expected to be a part at the center of that. And what they find themselves is alone and abandoned with a leader who is either uh, arrested or has been executed and all their hopes and dreams came crumbling. And I just imagine the anxiety they must have had trying to grasp for anything. And so it makes a lot of sense that these would be men who, who were very devoted to fasting because it gave them some sense of stability in chaos, in change, in transition, as many of us are going through right now. We try and grab hold of something that gives us some sense of stability and standing and comfort because it feels normal, something that brings back some normalcy. And they come to Jesus and they, they critique him. And Jesus could get angry. Jesus could get, I mean, he's Jesus. He's the son of God. He's the one we're going to read about in a minute that John the Baptist baptizes him. He comes back out. The voice of God thunders throughout and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. They, the other people come to, Jesus, come to John and they're like, are you the one? Are you the one that, like, are you that guy? And he's like, he's like, no, that is the Messiah. That's the one that we've been preparing for. He's the one right there. And Jesus could have gotten angry and gone, guys, how have you missed it? How, how do you not understand? How are you anxious and afraid? How have you missed it? This is what everything was preparing for, was for me, the Messiah, to come. How could you come and critique me? But he doesn't. He's kind and he shepherds them. And he, here's, here's the thing that I want you to hear today. God's not angry because of your doubt. God's not angry because of your questioning. 
God's not angry because you're anxious today about the future. God's not angry with you. He, he's not up there going, come on. Have you not seen what I've done throughout all of human history? Have you not seen all the stories of my provision? Have you not heard the commands that I've given you? He's not angry with you this morning. That this morning, that if you find yourself like the disciples of John, just trying to grasp for any sense of normalcy and trying to sort together and figure out this whole life and afraid and worried and anxious and troubled. God is not angry with you. He wants to shepherd you. And you see what he says to the disciples of John. He says this, which seems like just kind of grabbing out of thin air, this thing about a bridegroom, right? About a groom and a wedding and that the groom and his best men, they, they wouldn't fast at a wedding. That wouldn't make any sense. And that may just seem to us like he just randomly grabbed out some illustration to say like, look, this is, this is what's going on, right? But he's not. He's speaking directly to the words of their rabbi and John the Baptist. Words that John said. He, he says this, in John 3, verse 27, John, this is the same John, John the Baptist, right? Which, remember, is different than the guy who wrote the Gospel of John. It gets confusing, but John, who wrote the Gospel of John, is talking about John the Baptist, and it says this. No one can have anything unless God gives it. You yourselves are my witnesses. He's talking to these disciples. He's talking to these disciples who come and critique Jesus. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him, the bridegroom. Look at the words that John uses. This is probably years before Jesus' interaction with John's disciples. The bridegroom is the one who, to whom the bride belongs, but the bridegroom's friend who stands by and listens is glad when he hears the bridegroom's voice. This is how my own happiness is made complete. You see, John the Baptist is trying to teach his disciples what the world's going to look like. And the illustration he teaches them that he probably said over and over and over again. We have it recorded once in the book of John. But he says, you've heard it said, like I've told you over and over again. I'm not the bridegroom. I am the best man, right? And so when, Jesus is, when John's disciples come to critique Jesus, it is the pastoral shepherd kind thing that he does. That he uses the same illustration that John, John does because he's trying to point their minds back to the truth that they knew. The truth that they knew. John said, I'm not the one. I'm not the one. This is a gift from Jesus. He's not angry. He's trying to call them to come and trust and to believe and to find faith in him. To find a grounding, not only in what has been said and what they've known to be true, to find a grounding in the things that they've read and they've been told and they've heard year after year after year after year. John would say to them over and over and over, there's one coming, there's one coming. This is the whole purpose, there's one coming. We're not, we're not, we're not the point, right? In fact, actually, the next verse um, is, is a really famous verse, and John says this, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's not the point, this is the whole thing is that there's this Messiah coming and he offers them this gift. And this morning, if you're angry or hurt or full of shame or bitterness or doubt, I want you to know that the God that we worship is not a God who's angrily going to come before you and say, how dare you question me? But he's going to be a God who shepherds you. 
He says, hey, remember. Remember all the times I've been faithful. Remember all the things I've said. I've always said. I've never said that it's going to be easy in this life. In fact, I've said you're going to have trouble in this world. But do not fear, for I have overcome this world. That Jesus wants to shepherd you, that if you find yourself full of doubt or questioning God's goodness, he's not angry, but he wants to invite you. He wants to shepherd you just as he did John's disciples, a people he could have gotten angry with. He shows compassion and grace. And today he wants to do the same to us because there's a lot we don't understand. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, there's this great quote and it says um, that in, in these weeks we have not lost control. We've lost the perception of control. And some of us have come to this really uncomfortable reality that we never actually had control of what we thought we had control of. And we've gotten angry with God that we thought we could control it. We thought that we could control his love for us and his response to us. And that if we did the right thing, that people wouldn't get sick. And if we did the right things, our finances would stay together. If we did the right thing, and, 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 and we thought that we could treat God like a vending machine. And God's inviting us. He's inviting us to come and trust in the good shepherd that he is. He, uh, he goes on. Well, there's a verse in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. You probably know it says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It is the character of God that he is patient with you. In our doubts, in our fears, in our bitterness, in our rebellion, even in our idolatry, still he says to us, come, my child. You see, these are the words that he's offering to John's disciples. Come, come to the party, come celebrate, for the bridegroom is here. In his patience, he tries to give John's disciples a new way of thinking, a new way of seeing all that's changing in his world. And so he gives them two really short parables that are just one verse apiece. The first one, it says this in verse 16, but no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. You see, I don't know how much sewing you've done, or um, even if you've done sewing, probably most of the time the cloth you work with is pre-shrunk cloth. Um, but the illustration is relatively easy to see from there is that if you take a piece of cloth that's already been shrunk, you know, you put it in the washer and dryer. They, they didn't put it in the washer and dryer, but you wash it and dry it and it shrinks. And then you put a piece that's not shrunk and then you wash both of them. That one's going to shrink and it's going to pull away and it's going to tear and the tear is bigger and it's going to erode the edges and all this kind of nasty stuff. You see, Jesus is inviting John's disciples to see the world in a whole different way because Jesus is not something that you can simply add on. Je Jesus isn't something that you can just add on at your convenience. You can't just add him on to your Sunday morning. You can't just add him on to the way you parent. He, you can't add him on as a strategy around your finances and financial uh, security or whatever it might be. You can't just add him on, but Jesus is saying it's a whole new thing. You see, he uses this imagery of clothing, of clothing, um, because clothing was, was distinctly linked with purity, with family, and with identity. 
You see, Jesus is saying that, that what I'm doing isn't just a little patch that, that you can put on to make yourself pure. It's not just a little patch that you can put on and say, oh, I'm part of Jesus's family. Um, uh, or, or a little patch you can say, oh, oh yeah, I'm all these things and I'm a Jesus follower. But what Jesus is saying, what he's inviting the disciples to say is, is no, no, what I'm doing is something totally new, something that redefines who you are and that if you're gonna be a follower of me, that you're gonna be clothed, you're gonna be covered, you're gonna be consumed in a new identity, in a new sense of cleanliness, in, in, in a new purpose, and in a new family. It says this in um, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4, while we live in this earthly tent, right, this, this, this robe, this clothing, this covering, we groan with a feeling of oppression. It is not that we want to get rid of our earthly body, but that we want to have the heavenly one put on over us. See the imagery of clothing? To be consumed so that what is mortal will be transformed by life. Jesus wants to lay over you a new identity, a new purpose, a new family, a new position, a new posture. He wants to lay these over you and you can't just add Jesus on. Jesus wants to invite you not to a slight upgrade, a nice addition, but to a brand new thing, a new identity. He's inviting John's disciples to let go of the identity of these um, devoted religious followers of John the Baptist and find a whole new identity as followers of Jesus. The second parable continues on with this idea in, in uh, verse 17. It says this, nor do people put new wineskin into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskin bursts and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins and they're both preserved. We could talk about why scientifically that happens, but you don't care and I don't care, so we're not going to. But here, here's, here's, um, here's a question we have to ask is why is wine used? There's a lot of theories about why Jesus used this parable about wine. It, it could be um, imagery of the Passover right? That Jesus is saying that, hey, remember this devotion you've made year after year after year. You've come every year and you've taken this glass of wine that represents the blood of lambs spilled. And, um, uh, and, and if you just try and take what I'm doing and fit it into what you've been doing, it's not going to work. It might be wine because it's a connection to um, the illustration earlier about the bridegroom. Part of uh, Jewish celebration in the day was actually two glasses of wine that would seal their commitment one to another. The, the husband and wife, or the, to be the husband and wife to be, they would actually first have a ceremony at the wife's family and a rabbi and religious leaders would do all this kind of stuff. And, and, and then to seal the commitment, they would drink from a glass of wine. And then the groom would take the bride and he would go to his family, and they would have a ceremony over at his family, and again, they would drink from this glass of wine that, that was the symbolism of uniting them as families, uniting them as one, and maybe this is part of what Jesus is doing. Maybe Jesus is using this wine illustration because it's a connection to Sabbath, to rest, to savor. You see, um, wine, um, bread, it's interesting when we take communion, we take bread and we take wine. And in Jewish thought in Jesus' day, bread was like the base sustenance, that if you had bread, um, you had enough. And if you had wine, you had excessively more. That wine was like the symbol of wealth and, and abundance and overwhelming because wine comes from having an abundance of grapes that you don't have to eat 
to sustain yourself or grape juice that you have to drink to sustain yourself and you can let it sit and you can let it ferment, right? And so there's two opposite things. And so um, uh, maybe it's this illustration of abundance and goodness and Jesus says that I've come, come that you have, might have life and you might have it abundantly. Uh, maybe, maybe there's a, a different connection, different illustration that we don't understand. Maybe it's just the simple illustration. But whatever it is, there's, there's an interesting thing that I noticed in this whole thing is that in two parables, Jesus actually focuses on the new thing both times. Did you notice that? He says, you don't take a new patch, right? It's, it's, his priority is about the new patch. You also, you don't take new wine, right? You don't take a new wine and put it in an old, but what you do with the new patch and what you do with the new wine is his emphasis. But there's a really interesting thing on top of that is um, he seems to be concerned with the new because in taking care of the new, it preserves the old. Do you see that? Because you see, um, with the new patch, if you take the new patch and you put a new patch on, on um, uh, shrunk clothes, an unshrunk patch and you put on shrunk clothes, the new patch actually still survives, right? Because now it's just a shrunk patch and now you can put it on shrunk clothes. But the, the, uh, the, the old cloth, the old thing that you're patching is destroyed. If you take a new wine and you put it in old wineskin, they both burst and are destroyed. But if you put the new wine, Jesus says, into new wineskin, they're both preserved. It's an interesting thing to think that Jesus is actually concerned with the preservation of the old, because you see, God did a lot of great things before Jesus came along. Do you know that? I mean, like this book is like predominantly a story that we call the Old Testament of things that, incredible things that God did. And even through John the Baptist, incredible things that he did through John the Baptist in the beginning of what we call the New Testament. But Jesus is inviting his followers and the followers of John the Baptist, the Pharisees, the people of the day, and us today to something new, to let go of what was. See, I have no doubt that there have been things that God has done in your life that have been amazing. Like, I have no doubt that there have been seasons in your life, there have been churches, there have been ministries, there have been camps, there have been mission trips, there have been Bible studies where God did incredible things in your life. Amazing. And they may be the marker of, of significant and miraculous and amazing change in your life. You, you may have done a Bible study with some people and it forever changed your marriage. You may have done a, a small group of some people and it forever changed your prayer life. You may have done some sort of class or something and forever changed your, um, your past and your bitterness and your anger. Those things are amazing. But what Jesus is inviting John's disciples to and what he's inviting us to is that he wants to do something new in you today. That he wants to invite you to let go of the past to let go of what has been, maybe it was amazing and maybe it was horrible. Maybe what is in the past is bitterness and anger and hatred and hurt and brokenness. And maybe it was amazing, maybe it was life-giving. But here's what Jesus is telling us is that if we are a people who hold on to the past and hold on to the things that were, we will miss out on the things that God is wanting to do in us. There's a really crazy end to this story. 
It actually doesn't even come right where Jesus is. It comes in Acts 19. Um, and, and so it says this. I'm just going to read it to you. You don't have to turn there. But it says this in Acts 19. It happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, you don't have to worry about the names, just get the gift here. Paul was passing through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, historically, this is probably no less than a decade after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It may be as much as 30 years later. There are these disciples of John. It says this in verse 3, and he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was to come after him. That is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak with tongues and prophecy. See, here's the sad truth is it seems from the accounts we have throughout scripture and through the early church that many of John's disciples totally missed the new thing that God wanted to do that they followed the man who was to be the precursor for the Messiah to come, and maybe as many as 30 years later, there were followers of John who had missed John's mission, who'd missed the new thing. They were so hung up. They were so attached to the thing that God had done in the past in John that they missed. Did you see it? The power of the Holy Spirit. They missed the power. They missed God's move in their life because they'd been so attached and so hung up on the things of the past that they missed out on what God wanted to do in their future. I think that there are many of us, followers of Jesus, who've seen and experienced God do incredible and mighty and amazing things in our life. And we, like John's disciples, have settled. We've settled with the satisfaction of things God's done in the past. We've settled with the satisfaction of the level of redemption and restoration God's done in the past. But what Jesus is inviting us to today is just like he invited John's disciples to come and follow me, that I'm doing something new, something that's not going to fit in the way you think about things. I mean, just look at the way we're doing church. Who would have thought three months ago that every single one of us would be watching online? Think about the way it's changed your family. Think about the way it's changed your job and your workplace and your relationships with your spouse if you're married. Think about the way it's changed your schooling and and, uh, education and your future plans and summer plans. Think about how it's changed everything. But what God wants to do in you is to bring redemption and restoration that God has more he wants to do. And when we, when we hold on to the things of the past, we miss out. We miss out. What is it? What is it for you? What is it for you that you've been holding on to, that you've been unwilling to let go of, good or bad in your life, and you've missed out on what God wants to do in you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you this morning that you are 
to us as you were to John's disciples, kind and gracious. That you are as you were to John's disciples, a good shepherd, a pastor who calls us to come. Lord, I pray that this morning, that in the midst of an upheaval of everything that seemed normal and stable in our lives, that we would hear your unchanging voice. Come, come, my child. Come and see what I want to do. Come and rest. Come and leave behind the brokenness, the fear, the worry. Come. Come to me, my child. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In a moment, we're going to worship together. And I know that that sounds weird to say. Maybe if this is your first time joining us online, it feels really unnatural and odd. And this may be the time where you would naturally think, oh, okay, well, uh, now it's time to turn it off. But I would really encourage you this morning to not miss out on this moment. You see, yes, we are missing out on the opportunity to stand in the same room and to hear our voices one another, but we're not missing out on an opportunity to join in all creation worshiping. We've said it over and over again as a church that we believe that what we're doing here is we're not beginning a worship service at any point in time, that we're simply entering in. We're joining with all of creation, the saints who've gone before us, the angels, all of creation. Jesus says that even the rocks will cry out and worship. So this morning, maybe you're going to stay in your living room and sing. Maybe you just need to sit. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to take a different posture. Maybe you need to kneel. Maybe you need to even just lay yourself out on the floor and to say the words, to sing, to believe, to remind your soul again of his goodness. Whatever you choose to do this morning, let us worship as one body.